Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about yelling at the authors of a fun cartoon for not reading enough anthropology and anti-civ literature. I am Ryan Salisbury, and uh, today I have two guests, uh, Daniel. Hey, how you doing? And we got returning guest Cheech. What's up? So today is episode three of Isekai July, and for this episode we're talking about an anime that I've actually talked about a bunch of times already, which is uh, Dr. Stone. So just to intro it real quick, it's an isekai manga by Korean artist Boichi, uh, which is a pen name, and uh, Japanese writer Riichiro Inagaki that began in March 2017 and is continuing today. Uh, it was adapted into an anime in summer of 2019 by a studio whose name I don't recognize, but has an actually extremely prolific filmography. Uh, it's... <laughs> TMS Entertainment, which is Tokyo Movie Shinsha. That's the former name. Um, so it has done a lot of anime, including Lupin the Third, Detective Conan, D. Gray Man, Anpan Man, Monster Rancher, Hamtaro, which I think most people will have heard of, uh, Bakugan, and Sonic X. Akira? I missed that one the first time. Apparently, it did oh, Akira, wow. which is amazing. And uh, they also did a bunch of Western animation, including Inspector Gadget, The Real Ghostbusters, DuckTales, The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Tiny Toon Adventures, Batman the Animated Series, Animaniacs, and Spider-Man the Animated Series. Dang. <laughs> Dang. I had no idea the whole time that I was watching this, <laughs> that that's what they DuckTales did. DuckTales and Akira were animated by the same company? Apparently. <laughs> what the fuck? And Hamtaro? What the fuck? <laughs> wow. And what Batman, the animated series. That, that, yeah, that's the best Batman. One. And the Inspector Gadget animated series. That was a weird one. Did any of you see that? It was weird. Which one, Inspector yeah. Gadget? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw real a little weird. bit of it. Yeah, it was, it was very weird. He had like a real long face. It looked like a pill. That's all I remember <laughs> from it. Like, that giant face. It like haunts me to this day they'll have nightmares <laughs> mm -hmm. um so just to summarize a little bit what dr stone is to hopefully get everyone interested in uh watching and listening to this taiju who is one of the main characters is about to confess his love to his childhood friend yuzuriha when a green light washes over the earth and petrifies every person on the planet which i realized when i wrote this didn't it somehow didn't affect animals, but uh, I guess that's just a minor plot hole. But anyway. Only sparrows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so For Taiju awakens 3,700 years in the future to a world with no civilization where he finds his other childhood friend Senku, who's a science whiz, subsisting and waiting for Taiju to awaken. And so basically the story is they tried to begin uh, rebuilding civilization with Senku's scientific knowledge and Taiju's brawn. So they create a fluid that can depetrify people, and uh, when they're about to use it, they get attacked by a pack of lions, and so they have to use the only fluid they have to revive uh, what they call the strongest primate high schooler, <laughs> Tsukasa, who immediately punches two of the lions to death instantly. <laughs> As they do. Yeah. And uh, then Tsukasa and Senku immediately start butting heads because Tsukasa is, is an anti-civ communist basically, and Senku is a stem lord statist. And so that's where the story starts. We have so much freedom in this stone world. Nobody is around to claim that shells are their personal property. Or the ocean, or the land. 
Long time ago, there was a poor boy whose little sister was going through surgery. He collected seashells to make a necklace for her and help her feel better. His sister loved the little mermaid. But along came an older man who owned the fishing rights to that part of the beach. He reeked of booze. The boy thought he was collecting shells, but the man, the man accused him of stealing the shells and beat him so badly he was almost unrecognizable. He was never able to make his sister feel like the Little Mermaid. You do know what you just did, don't you? That may have looked like a statue, but we both know you just killed a man. Of course I know. Tell me something, Senku. Are you planning to bring back all the greedy, black-hearted adults who ruined the world we came from? Sure. They'll be overly grateful to you right after you help them out, but... As soon as civilization returns, the rich and powerful will say things like, This used to be my property, so you better start paying me rent. Next, they'll try to collect taxes. They'll rob the young people like us of our future all over again. We simply can't bring that kind of world back. We live in the stone world now. A paradise that hasn't been ruined by greed. I think we should only revive the young and pure-hearted, and make sure that we keep this world natural and not owned by anyone. This is our chance to purify humanity. Don't you agree with me, Senku? No, I don't. That speech didn't move me one millimeter. I'm the kind of guy who absolutely loves technology. I get excited by space and mechs and Doraemon and stuff like that. I'm going to use the awesome power of science to rescue every last person. <laughs> so what was y'all's overall impression of, of the show? Uh, maybe I'm an old man, but, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed the show. And I, I used to watch a lot of anime when I was younger. And I, I actually think that it had a lot of very interesting concepts that it was discussing. I don't know how many of them that it was aware it was discussing, <laughs> you know, like to some degree in, in, I was looking at it through this lens of um, it being like a metaphor for early humanity, right? Them kind of making statements about what they thought, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, what, what the state of early humanity was like. Mm-hmm. And so then me, once again, being an old man, I was like, I don't know about these anime tropes. They keep screwing up my analysis, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) like, but, uh, but no, overall I I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. Um, and definitely stands apart from a lot of other animes, very, very different sort of, um, uh, approach to storytelling. How about you, Cheech? It was really unique. Like I, it kind of stood out. I went into it prepared for it to be just, you know, standard isekai, like, kind of bullshit. But I don't know. I really enjoyed watching Primitive Technology, the anime, after <laughs> seeing the original source material on YouTube. But it, it 
it kind of like made me mad at the beginning. I, the more I read into it, it's like it just keeps correcting mistakes that it made to an extent. Like the whole uh-huh. Senk Sukasa conflict ends up getting resolved in a really cool way. Like, just I, I, I really like it. I'm a big fan, and I, there's a reason I've watched it twice this. <laughs> I watched the anime twice this week and then read like to 124 in the manga. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, this was originally just going to be me and Daniel, and then um, I saw Cheech posting pictures of himself watching uh, Dr. Stone, and I was like, ooh, let's get Cheech back on here. <laughs> <laughs> this is when Sukasa fucking yoinked the, the goose out of the air. And just like <laughs> from tree to tree, just like goose. <laughs> yeah, Tsukasa has some. Uh, I don't know if you call it a Mary Sue, but he has some serious Mary Sue vibes at times. He's just like basically whatever the writer needs him to be at any given point. Impervious when he needs to be impervious. All powerful when he needs to be all powerful. I guess for me, as as I was trying to read it through the lens of early humanity, that was one of the most frustrating parts. Because it's like, if you're looking at early humanity and you're trying to understand like why everything turned out the way it did, kind of understanding the interaction between what it was to be the warrior class and how precarious your life really was in warfare, no matter how good you were, is kind of one of the parts that you need to understand in order to, to really have a good overview of why early human culture evolved the way it did and so then having your the the exemplar of your warrior class be almost literally impervious uh definitely makes that analysis more challenging (laughs) yeah and they definitely have a lot of the like um lone powerful warrior characters like they have i think like six of them or so by Mm -hmm. the current uh chapter and humans in reality are what do you call it? Uh, not pack hunters, but something like that. Like basically the reason we were able to survive is that we're really good at coordinating with one another. Like we're yeah. super weak on our own. We definitely can't punch lions to death. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not even one. <laughs> Maybe if we get like eight people <laughs> together and, and punch all at once, then you could punch a lion to death. But I don't know. Just a cluster of fists. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was just one of those things where... <clears throat> You know, I was trying to, I I was looking at it through this lens of, oh, it's a question of which wins, uh, brute strength and dominance uh, ideology or, you know, cleverness and technological know-how. And, you know, that's actually a somewhat complicated question, especially now in the modern era where it's like, especially not clear in the post-Vietnam era, right? Mm -hmm. But back then, I think it was quite a bit more clear, like way back in primitive society, even small advances in technology were that created vast superiority over your of your uh, opponents like not to the degree they couldn't defeat you but to the degree that you know if you put in the requisite amount of effort you would probably defeat an equal opponent with better technology um, yeah and there's a lot of stuff you wouldn't think of as like a new technological advance like uh, one of the things i read about recently was the invention of the stirrup like the part of the saddle that mm-hmm. you put your feet on was like a huge military advance because it made horseback archers better at aiming. Mm-hmm. So that they were sense. able to yeah, be more stable on their feet. And yeah, it was like uh night and day. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that all makes sense. Um, I, I was, I, you know, the, I guess what frustrated me was I was like, oh, okay, well, they discovered black powder first. I mean, seems like it's basically <laughs> game over, right? Like, you know, yeah. you got black powder bombs, like, uh, you know, I don't know how you go. I don't know how anybody wins after that. And it's like, oh, well, Sukasa is invulnerable. So it doesn't actually matter if you have black powder bombs and not clear to me, in fact, how you defeat him or do any damage to him. Uh, <laughs> so so then the story essentially just, uh, I think, becomes a, a a telling of two parallel societies and asking you to make a question to ask questions about what the ethics of these two societies are um, and uh, whether one of them is better than the other. And I think that's where a lot of the the tension in the show comes from. So that's a perfect segue. Um, let's get into Senku versus Tsukasa on on an ideological basis. So Senku's goal is to revive every last human and restore society to exactly how it was thirty seven hundred years prior. So like it, I think I think the story starts in the twenty thirties because they they mentioned like dates in the 2020s and then so Tsukasa not to like bias the framing too much but he basically says if we revive everyone then the people that were involved in the power structure in the old world will want to rebuild that power structure and they will want to reclaim their property make people pay rent make people pay taxes and so he's against Senku for that reason so it's I, I framed it as the world's largest trolley problem. So will reviving the people involved in the old power structure bring that power structure back? And if so, is it ethical to revive those people? Um, so let's start with you guys. What do you, what do you all think? So oh, yeah, go, go for it, Cheech. No, no, you. I've gone first several times. You go. Oh man! All right. <laughs> so <laughs> damn. Now I gotta go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I really. Like I really appreciate the like the differences in their ideology, but uh, I mean uh, obviously I'm gonna lean Team Sukasa because I think Senku, with all of his knowledge of science, doesn't really understand like the implications of statecraft that he brings back. Like he just like goes straight to making guns, and it's like yeah, guns will help you beat Sukasa, but now you've kind of created this huge problem in a primitive world where you got these murder weapons and like just kind of complicating things further. And then later on in the manga, it gets even worse when he starts creating things that I won't mention yet because spoilers, <laughs> but like just really fucking really doesn't think forward except in the terms of science. So Senku is like inherently flawed, but Tsukasa uh, goes around smashing the statues of all the old people. And like on one hand, you know, uh, a lot of the people who are probably renters and stuff, they're probably not like super young. So, but still like how many like just working class old people are there that he's smashing up and not to mention like later on, not to like reveal too much, but they bring back a young person who's totally everything that Sukasa like fucking fears in mm. like a person greedy fucking wants to own everything and get everybody to pay him rent. So like, realistically they should have just been like hey we can't bring back all the old people yet because we don't have you know what if somebody comes back and they have a heart condition or like some kind of chronic illness that requires advanced medicine or anything like that 
Yeah, so did they, they ever mention that in the story? Uh, what, I like, think what if we bring back an old person and they have diabetes? They don't mention that specifically, especially not in the anime, but I think Hyoga uh, touches on it at a certain point. Hmm. Just briefly, it's it's really overshadowed. But like, so realistically, they they bring back young, hardworking people to build civilization. They build a, you know, propertyless society that Tsukasa helps build. And then after they get it, you know, situated, then they bring back all the people who could potentially be the renter class, the landlord class, all those kind of people. And if they try to take the land, they'll be like, no, we've been, we built this, sorry. You know, they can resist it easier. You ever so, heard of John Locke? <laughs> <laughs> Checkmate. Yeah. Wait. But uh, I think uh, if I were, I, I think, you know, when you look at both of them, they both have a flawed ideology, right? Like mm. uh, Senku yeah. is attempting to bring back the old world and just in a completely uncritical fashion. Um, you know, he, he doesn't even consider what flaws the old world had for the exact reason that's been discussed. And that is that he sort of worships science. Uh, it's not like science is a tool. It's like he thinks that, you know, a science by itself just builds this, this coherent, just society. Um, even with, I don't even think it's science. I think he's just doing engineering. Like they keep calling it science, but he's just doing engineering. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, experimentation is essentially what he's doing. And even then mostly chemistry and engineering, but, um, you know, he, he, he worships science, so he thinks that whatever science is going to produce is essentially going to produce a good society. And maybe that's mm-hmm. because he was sort of this shut-in, uh, you know, uh, in the previous society who probably didn't even experience the vast exploitation that was taking place. Um, whereas Sukasa, as a character, definitely uh, gives us the understanding that he had experienced that exploitation, that he saw it firsthand. Um, he seemed much more aware of his surroundings. That being said... Sukasa is essentially an eco-fascist. Like he 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 wants the destruction of technology because he also like a primitivist believes that technology itself creates the power structures instead of I would say more in line of what Bookchin would say that technology is not an autonomous driving force but is itself a mirror of social relations. So then you have Sukasa essentially creating kind of what you guys uh, uh, you know motioned at a little bit. Uh, a society where if they were to actually revol- revive everyone, um, even if it were all the, the kids, you would have uh, large numbers of people who would not be supported by by the society Sukasa has created. People with all kinds of chronic illnesses would be, uh, I, I suppose, uh, left to die. I, I don't know what else they could do. You know, they have very, they would have very little recourse. And it seems to me, and I haven't read the manga, so I don't really know. It hasn't gone. They didn't go into super far depth with Sukasa's. Uh, uh, social structure, but it sure seems to me that Sukasa is just running like a protection racket, which is exactly how all states arose to begin with. The military, military brotherhoods came to the peasant societies, offered them protection, um, and as the military brotherhoods gained power by resisting conquest, became the early feudal lords. So Sukasa is the rise of feudalism. That's what he represents. Um, and maybe he's feudalism without technology, which I don't know if that's even better. So if I decide one way or the other, I don't know. I think, I think Senku, it, 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 just him developing technology in and of itself 
is not to recreate the previous society, which maybe is a is a, a tick in his favor because if he just thinks that all he has to do is make cell phones and and cars or whatever, and that all at once the whole society he was once in will be reproduced, he's wrong, and that's kind of good because he won't be able to reproduce that previous society just by doing that. So all he's really doing is creating the tools that are going to help people live within this primitive state of nature. Um, but obviously, the answer is both of them are wrong and need to compromise on the things they're wrong about. Senku needs to understand the previous world was disgusting and was a world full of exploitation. And Tsukasa needs to understand that technology is not an autonomous driving force. It is a reflection of social relations. Um, so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on Tsukasa being anti-technology because, and this was even in the anime, at first when he sees Senku creating these new technologies, he's really impressed and thinks that maybe we have a new hope. The thing that actually made him turn against Senku was specifically Senku saying, I'm going to revive every single person. And so it's not that he's against technology, it's that he's against Senku's way of reviving everyone and everything that was in the old society. Um, so that's, that's, that's the main reason I side with Tsukasa. Um, and I think Tsukasa could be convinced more easily than Senku, who's like stubborn as shit and is like his ideology is basically scientism. And so he doesn't care about humanities or sociology or any of that shit. He's just all about technology and engineering and stuff like that. Radical STEM Lord. <laughs> yeah. He is a radical stim lord. That is yeah. exactly what he is. Um, I really like Anarch's point about how technology uh, is a reflection of social like relations. Because especially when you look at the people that uh, Senku uh, Senku surrounds himself with, like it'd be really hard for that society to kind of move that way, unless they start, you know, reviving kings and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like monarchs and politicians and shit really early. It'd be fairly hard. Well, they did. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's that's kind of good. But even even uh, even the 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 greedy person, they yeah, uh, Risui. Yeah. Okay. Never never knew how to pronounce it. Even Risui ends up being like a really good person, which it's kind of like. It's this whole point about how, like, greed feeds human innovation and makes us more of a humanist or some kind of point like that, which is kind of trashy. But, yeah, like, still, Senku... I still think he has a very capitalist ideology, though. Um, Let's just say... You guys are talking uh, about somebody in the manga now? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So, for the next uh, minute or so, I'm going to spoil a bunch of shit. So, if you don't want to hear it, then skip ahead a couple notches. Uh, so they revive this uh, billionaire, Ryusui, who is, uh, you know, he pilots yachts. So they, they want to journey to the other side of the world to find out what caused the petrification. So they need this ship captain. So they revive Ryusui, who is immediately like, yeah, you won't be able to get there with uh, sailing technology. So we need oil. And uh, if I'm, uh, I'm going to take you there, then I want a claim on all the oil you find. And for the fuel for the ship's journey, you're going to have to buy it from me with money. So they create money, revive a billionaire, they create money, and they (laughs) are going to start using oil, like, all in one go. (laughs) 
Wow. Yeah, that is that is a really bad jump. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he made a tank too. Like just a lot of bad decisions on Senku's part. And all that, the motivations for Ryusui being like a nice person is just because he wants to own everyone. And so he wants them to be like their best possible self so that he can own a better person. <laughs> yeah, that actually I think might be a reflection of of like an unspoken bias by the writer because mm-hmm. like Senku yeah, also Yeah, we'll get into that later. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 gotcha. Um but yeah, I think I, I you know taking your point about Sukasa not wanting to revive everyone. Um that does seem to be the point where he where he you know made the turn. Something that strikes me, however, is that even though he appears to know, which this is another one of those places where he's kind of a Mary Sue, he seems to know like some ridiculous amount of science for no reason. Like, you know, Senku's like, oh man, Tsukasa's so smart. He'll know all this stuff. And it's like, I don't know why Tsukasa would know any of the things you're discussing. But um, if Tsukasa... They did mention at one point that he was top in his high school. Uh, Oh, okay. So he's like a really good student (laughs) and a really good fighter. Okay. Well, they maybe a little Mary Sueish, but they do actually attempt to explain it at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would at least have then have the knowledge to create much more technology than we see in his in his uh, commune, if you want to call it that. Uh, it's it seems to me like you know they could have quite done quite a bit more than they were doing there. But I don't know. I, I, obviously, I they don't dive too deep into the social organization of of uh, uh, Tsukasa's group uh, within the anime. We are, we're just left with these kind of brief glimpses that give us a semi-communistic understanding, but then, as I said, also kind of the foundations for early feudalism. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, they don't get too much to... more into it in the manga. It, it seems like the social organization is basically just that um, Tsukasa is a leader and they don't really they don't seem to have like laws or anything like that they do follow tukasa's like wishes so there is like a bit of hierarchy there but it's not like a formal hierarchy like tukasa has like some title and they are supposed to obey the person with that title and then we also find out later he's keep he's the one that is keeping Hyoga in check, and Hyoga is just a straight up social Darwinist. Like he wants mm. to call the weak, and um, Sukasa was the one preventing him from doing that. And another interesting detail that they uh, talk about this this will be like right early on in season two uh, is that Sukasa actually feels a great deal of remorse for every person that. Uh, every statue that he smashes and remembers every single one of them. Hmm. But he feels like he's taking moral responsibility to prevent uh, the old society from reemerging. Yeah, see, that, that's interesting. And that, I think, <clears throat> insofar as that we, we would say the split between Tsukasa and Senku is about who to revive, then, then there's really a whole other conversation about like what the method is about how you would decide who to revive and mm-hmm. kind of a comparison of what Senku and Sukasa are doing. So like Senku's is is certainly quite naive, I would say. You know, obviously, uh, even if you were to accept that you ultimately wanted to revive everyone, which is perhaps not even something we would want to accept, uh, you would not necessarily just want to revive them indiscriminately 
Sanku mm-hmm. seems to not really have uh, any metric by which he understands who he would revive other than how does it serve him in the moment. And yep. uh, I, that that is not going to be a smart way to recreate your society. And quickly, Sanku would lose power in such a society if he were to do that for, for too long. Whereas Sukasa's is flawed in a very different way, kind of as we've we've mentioned, uh, he's he's an ageist in a very significant <laughs> way. Uh, he's chosen the old, understanding the old to be the ruling class. That that's not correct. Which is a pretty common take, though, especially nowadays. You know. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not wrong to say that the ruling class is filled full of old people. Right. It's just wrong to say that old people are the ruling class. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and, um, um, another thing that's helping Tsukasa uh, decide who to revive is uh, one of the people he revived is a reporter that interviewed him, and so she knows a bunch of people, um, and like what they did in the old world and what kind of people they were like, and so he uses her to um, help him decide who to revive, which is a pretty interesting detail. Yeah, yeah, it's smart. It's uh, much smarter than than how Sanku is doing it. <laughs> Uh, I, I think once again, if I, you know, it seems to me that the, the, the re, it's a, there's a reasonable synthesis between their two understandings yeah. here, you know, that, that if they could come to an understanding, you would actually have the possibility to create, uh, uh, not a utopian, but a liberatory society. Mm-hmm. If you could just fuse them together as one character, they would be the ultimate protagonist. Yes. <laughs> and 100%. the ultimate Mary Sue. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you would. <laughs> Able to punch lions and then also rebuild <laughs> robot lions or something. <laughs> so let's talk about, I wanted to talk about some of the Civ ideology, just like the kind of bias of the author in some of the story details. So the first thing I noticed was, and I don't want to, you know, say this as like trying to impugn the author's character. It's just something that we all think as like, you know, so-called common sense, but there's a lot of anti-indigenous racism in the story. So beyond uh, just the question of whether Senku or Tsukasa are more correct, like just how the author Inagaki views primitive people, they have a chief. I'm talking about Ishigami village. Sorry. Um, so they have a chief that's determined by a fighting tournament who governs everything in the village. They don't know how to preserve food or really do anything with food other than just grilling fish. They don't know what art or music is, which is, <laughs> was the most ridiculous one to me. <laughs> they, played, so they played this record they found and it had music on it. And they were like, oh my God, what is this? Like, dude, have you never heard a fucking bird before? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And the, and the last two things I have are just they think trying new things is dumb or a waste of time. And they seemingly couldn't figure out how to make nets, even though they're a fishing village. Yeah, at all. I yeah. There's a lot of just a lot of weird details like that. Agreed. There was a single scene that pissed me off the most. And it was when uh, Senku was bringing up the cell phone for the first time and magma turns around and is like what is that a type of fish i i almost (laughs) just went to bed just like come on man we get it you think you think everybody who doesn't have science and technology is just a big dumb Mm -hmm. like yeah (laughs) yeah well it's weird because uh through magma i think we are meant to to hear what the author thinks the um 
the sort of default mentality uh, is mm-hmm. in the in those primitive cultures, which is um, incredibly wrong. Uh, is so incredibly wrong. It's mind blowing. Like magma is in every way a sort of social Darwinist. He really does believe that that physical strength and the willingness to use it is what makes you deserve to be on top. And interestingly, as you mentioned, with them having a fighting tournament to determine who is the leader of the village, it seems like the author is like agreeing with him. Like that, yeah. that, that is actually the way that those early peoples thought that is just like not even close. To, it's the exact opposite. These these ideas of extreme hierarchies of dominance arose after the stage of the village commune, not during the stage of the village commune. So very confusing. Um, and then but then, you know, we get that whole thing when they're in the pit in the caves and magma is telling him his his silly ideology. And then we get uh, Senku's response, which presumably is the author's response. And that mm-hmm. is, I, I even wrote, I even uh, typed it out. It doesn't matter who's calling the shots or who's tougher. The fact is there are all kinds of people in the world. And true strength happens when everybody works together. It doesn't matter who's the boss or who's on top. Ugh. There are all <laughs> kinds of people and that equals strength. <laughs> Doesn't matter if Hitler's in charge, guys. <laughs> Cast of characters. It just it's it's in it's an inco- incoherent statement, and it's very yeah. bizarre that it's being spoken through the person who's supposed to be a reasonable counterbalance to magma. It's like magma's like, oh, it's all about social Darwinism, and the person who's on top should be the person who has the most brute strength and the willingness to use it. And Sink was like, no, no, you're completely wrong. And I'm like, yes, continue. And he's like, it doesn't even matter who the boss is. There are all kinds of people, and that equals strength. Oh my God, what just friendship. happened? Friendship, <laughs> the power of friendship. It's like I don't even know how this happened. Which another thing that makes another thing that makes that really weird is that then the author does seem to have an awareness that uh, of exploitation because we get that all, that narrative through Sukasa, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm I have a hard time like understanding what the author actually think thinks is true between these between these uh two poles that he's presented. I can't quite tell. I think this is like a Japanese version of liberalism because this is actually something that I've noticed in a lot of anime, uh, most recently in Ghost in the Shell. So they'll have like a leftist character who like most people actually agree with their like what they think and think they're very charismatic and, um, you know, people want to follow them. But then for one reason or another, they're like, but, you know, of course we can't do that. That would be, you know, naive or whatever. Like Kira from Death Note. I don't remember Death Note well enough to agree with you, but you're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) He just wanted, he was like killing all the like corrupt politicians. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought you said Akira for some reason. I was like, I didn't know there was someone in there named Akira. (laughs) No, no, Kira. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot of those. I love, that's probably my favorite like anime trope is when like the villain is very agreeable and you're just like, oh, (laughs) oh. Yeah, it's like every anime has Hans Gruber in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this happens in the West, too. This happens in the West, like Killmonger, for example. Yes, exactly. You watch watch Black Panther and you're like, oh, Killmonger seems like the bad guy. And then you learn more and you're like, 
Killmonger is definitely not the bad guy. <laughs> like he, I'm not wearing it right now, but I have a Team method. Killmonger shirt that I got from uh, Champagne Sharks. <laughs> right, though. I mean, you. The, but it's the same thing. I think is what you're discussing, right? Where where the that character, the character that has liberatory ideology, is also configured with some set of uh, other beliefs that make it to where you are convinced to reject the liberatory ideology and accept some. Uh, Fukuyamaist uh, end of uh, history, you know, capitalist realism, essentially, right? Like, I think that might be the thrust of what's taking place, where it's like, oh, well, you know, wanting better things sounds good, but true wisdom is accepting oppression. <laughs> so, since we're already talking about it, uh, let's get into one of the meta theory type things that I wanted to talk about, and then we'll we, we can go back to the civil ideology stuff. But I was. Right, I wrote a section about this exact thing, which is there's like unavoidable bias against antagonists in, in any story. So like if you have an ideological conflict in a story, the author is almost certainly going to side with the protagonist, which is why they make the protagonist's ideology, you know, that ideology. Mm -hmm. um, so the antagonist is inherently going to have some straw version of the actual ideology. So like in this case, you know, they make... Uh, Tsukasa is, I think, supposed to be an anti-civ communist, but he has like a straw version of the ideology where, and maybe not, but um, I, I like to read it this way, <laughs> uh, where he thinks that we should just kill old people, even though he, clearly he's motivated by, we need to not revive the old ruling class. And, you know, again, it could be just because like, he's a high schooler. He doesn't realize that the ruling class is like a specific group of people and not just like old people. But even if he like, even if the author realized that, I don't think he would write it that way because you would side with Tsukasa mm -hmm. if that were the case. If he were if he were completely right, you would side with him. So he can't write the story that way because then you would be rooting for the antagonist, and that is not a good way to write a story. Generally, um, I, I I agree with that. Another thing that made me think of this was uh, Stain from My Hero Academia, who his ideology was basically like opposing fascism, but it was written incoherently because I think the author is a fascist and doesn't understand anti-fascist ideology. Uh, but if you like, if you understand what he's saying, he's like, I think that heroes aren't in it to save people. They're in it to make money and be on top of society and have glory for themselves. He's clearly like gesturing towards anti the society they live in, which is fascism. <laughs> Especially um, when you look into like how fascist theory props up, like the, the strong man thing, mm -hmm. like the, the whole, the whole like superhero uh, genre is kind of like influenced or, or runs parallel to fascist theory of this whole, like the one strong person can rule the country and like fix it. So it really fucking like, that and really the problem is crime. The problem is the reaction yeah. to oppression and not oppression itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we already mentioned a good one, which a good example, which is Killmonger. Um, you know, ideologically, he is completely right. Uh, he <laughs> wants to start a revolution of oppressed people all over the world, but because they don't want you to agree with him so much, they make him into this, like, crazy straw person who you know, just randomly like kills people or whatever. And, and a lot of people who are trying to rationalize 
Killmonger being the villain, even though his goal is to liberate everyone, is oh well he you know he kills women. That was like <laughs> one of the big reactions from liberals after that movie came out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think I think the theme we see here is that what they want to do is they want to make the villain have uh, a coherent ideology of liberation, one that you identify with, but then they want them to have incoherent methods. Yeah, or 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 even uh, uh, disgusting methods, right? Methods that none of us would advocate. And I think in doing that, what they're doing is they're exposing their subconscious biases that uh, the people who are telling you you want a liberatory society never have a method that can achieve it is essentially what they're kind of saying. That's the subtext of what they're that saying. That is a great point. Yeah. And and if you think about it for five seconds, like if you understand the two ideologies, Sankus obviously will kill more people if he actually achieves his goal, which is to revive the old society, which has massive sacrifice zones and just global oppression. So it's mm-hmm. like, we'll show you that, you know, preventing that sort of society would involve any number of death, like any any amount of death at all. And that will make you turn against it and not show you the death that's coming ahead from Senku's side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. It's it's really like uh, on the nose for liberalism too, because if you look at it in real life, like the, all they do is like, oh, well, you got some good points, but you're ta- you you broke a window. Bad. <laughs> I do, I can't agree with you, even though I agree with everything you're saying. You burned a trash can, so it's just like that's just liberalism. It would be nice if we, you know, abolished oppression, but you got to admit the Soviet Union killed a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think, uh, you know, this is not to go too far astray, but I think it also has to do something with a lot of the age of a lot of people who are writing these scripts. Probably a lot of them have a memory of the new left, have a memory of sort of the, you know, the apologism for the USSR and the apologism for Maoist China. And I think that kind of lives in the cultural memories of some of the people in our in our parents and parents, parents generations and uh, affects the way that they frame all all liberatory projects. So, yeah, um, I think I think Japan also has like less less of a. social memory of their fascist era um Mm -hmm. like they're even worse than the u.s in a lot of ways about not acknowledging the evils that they committed in their past like uh they they just absolutely don't tell people about the occupation of uh, manchuria and like korean comfort women and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and um you know a lot of right-wing uh, Japanese politicians will go visit Yasukuni Shrine, which is full of names of uh, war criminals from World War II that you know committed uh, terrible crimes in the, um, I think it's called the Asian Holocaust or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and yeah. furthermore, Japan erases its radical history. So like mm-hmm. most Japanese yeah. people don't even know that Japanese anarchism was an enormous movement within Japan um, during the time uh, of the rise of fascism and mar- monarchistic impulses. Yet they were completely suppressed, not only during that period of time, which is to say killed, but now their memory is suppressed such that most J- Japanese people don't even know that there was a strong Japanese anarchist movement in response to Japanese fascism. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. So let's circle back to the Civ ideology stuff. So uh, another thing that I noticed a lot of was like kind of a revisionist history. And this isn't to say that the author is consciously doing it. Um, I think it's just like the sort of common sense understanding of early human history that like anytime you bring up the facts from, you know, early like ancient history and anthropology, pretty much everyone thinks this kind of stuff. Uh, so the, the main one that I have here is uh, the history of agriculture. So Senku basically says that hunter gatherer societies can only grow to a certain size and they start having famines after that. But as I understand it, that's the opposite of reality. And agriculture didn't actually come into favor until it was forced on everybody because agricultural societies are more vulnerable to famines. Um, and they consider agriculture to just be planting crops, which hunter gatherers did. Uh, they just don't plant monocultures. And the main difference between them and agriculturalists is sedentism mm -hmm. so hunter-gatherers would plant seeds and then they would move on uh once they've you know fed off of an area and then once they come back around to that area later on then their crops would be fully grown yeah they have more food stability than like the early grain not even the early grain societies like even till later grain societies yeah. Oh, they might have more stu food stability than we do now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's a lack of knowledge uh, about how the early the early process of that sedentism arose and its connection with with grain as a stable crop that all, that was you know had a had a growth cycle that the that uh, lords could rely on and, and use it as a form of taxation and that gr growing grain and that sedentary, uh, form of society was very much connected with the needs of early or early sort of monarchistic Lord lordship forms and their need, uh, to have a reliable, uh, source to tax from the, the early peoples. And I, I think most people don't even have any knowledge of that. Like it, it's a very sort of obscure part of, anthropological history yeah one so, of the yeah. things that um they were talking about was they need to grow wheat which is ridiculous on its own um because wheat is a very fragile crop compared to like even among grain crops it would be better to plant like rye or millet or buckwheat or um sorghum or something like that um but so they plant wheat and they're like, we need, we need food that can be stored for a really long time and grain can be stored for a long time, but it's definitely not even, it's not the most energy dense food that you can store, uh, which would be like pemmican or seed oil. Um, but, uh, the real reason as you were alluding to that grain came into favor is actually because it's very easy for, uh, violent forces to confiscate. And it's very easy. Uh, it's like very countable. So um, I think we've mentioned the concept of legibility on the show before, but just to summarize it, it's a concept from James Scott. I'm sure he, he didn't come up with it, but he popularized it in his book, Seeing Like a State. And um, legibility is essentially the ability for uh, a manager 
to understand a complex situation. So something being countable makes it easier for you know a bureaucracy to manage something. They can standardize amounts, um, and and the reliable plant uh, harvesting date. They they can make calendars and know you know when they should send their soldiers in to confiscate the grain that they're having their underclass grow. They can um, tax them on an amount of grain because it's so countable. Like if you have you try to tax people in in potatoes that's a lot harder than (laughs) taxing them in you know corns (laughs) um and and that's one of the those are like the main reasons that grain came into favor according to current um ancient history yeah yeah it's true so there and there's just a lot of these i think just misunderstandings and and of course it's hard to it's hard to expect somebody writing an anime to go like read all, all a whole bunch of anthropological history but um well he did have he had a science consultant for all the science stuff so he could have had an anthropology consultant for the anthropology stuff but he just didn't do that (laughs) oh well he wouldn't have been able to tell the story he wanted then that's or it would have been it would have been more incoherent i suppose but um (laughs) but yeah one thing one thing that uh uh one of the things that i think the show gets wrong is that it keeps making the the veiled claim that early human societies were organized by dominance hierarchies but by Mm. contrast they were actually mostly uh organized by knowledge so you you mostly had the 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 people who are most respected the people who are listened to in the informal sense were those who were oldest because the people who were oldest typically just had the most knowledge. You just went to them because, you know, they had been through so many cycles, uh, uh, seasonal cycles. They had been through so many years of life that they had seen this play out over and over and over. And they actually just had a lot of useful wisdom to impart. And in having that useful wisdom, people came to respect their opinion, followed what they thought should be done. Um, not because that person had some formal power, but just because we're all trying to survive. We're all trying to succeed. So and, and, a, and a warrior, some powerful warrior doesn't fulfill that role. I mean, he, he by the fact that he is good at killing people, doesn't mean that he is a good leader and doesn't mean that he knows how to keep your your village alive, doesn't know how to grow the crops or what crops to grow or how to deal with problems and disputes that are arising inside your village and with your village and other villages. So it's the exact opposite of what they've got portrayed. Elders were made into leaders, not fighters. Yeah. yeah to piggyback off your point too, uh, they, uh, in early hierarchical, or in early city states, if you look at the organization of it, it usually wasn't the warrior class at the tip top. It was usually the priest class, and the priest class would have been, you know, considered the 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 most intelligent of the uh, the group because they had the you know sole access to the generational wisdom. They had, you know, uh, designated oral historians and then scribes later on once paper was invented. So. Yeah, and they really, had like, the direct connection to the source of legitimacy, which in yeah, the, highly centralized states would have been the sky god. They are the ones yeah. who talk to the sky god. Mm-hmm. They, there's a really cool lecture on uh, uh, I forget who did it, but it was on spiritualism and anarchism, and uh, 
they're they're finding out that these religions that popped up in the beginning they were just kind of like decentralized spiritual beliefs mm-hmm. that you know like the river god and all that kind of stuff but then people would come along and enforce a hierarchy with it be like i am the priest of the river god mm. that's how like that and the culmination of grain and the uh the brotherhood of uh militaries that all together is what you know made the states so really sukasa senku and uh who would be the the priestess rui 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 yeah yeah them together would be just the perfect ingredients to make the first city state agreed yeah and that matches exactly what what kropotkin says in the state its historic role like that's exactly what he lays out. Um, essentially, yeah, you just what to be talking about this yesterday, right? I know, I know. <laughs> it's because you know. But uh, uh, Kropotkin is was basically saying that what happened was in these early villages, it used to be that um, there was a it was a lot more, um, uh, as you say, decentralized. People all had a lot more of a part in their lives, and part of this was that those oral traditions of what law was and what justice looked like and the stories of their people and what they believed about the world, their spiritual beliefs were like sort of decentrally held among people. And Kropotkin notes how what sort of took place is they began to trust more and more of that, that uh, storage of tradition, you might say, and the knowledge of that oral history to specialists. And as they trusted more and more of that knowledge into specialists, they created the early priestly class in that process. And in in doing the same thing with with military brotherhoods, the, essentially they would be, you know, uh, have problems with warring tribes or other tribes trying to war with them. And a military brotherhood would come to them and say, hey, um, if you let us stay on your land and you feed us, uh, we will protect you. And in doing so, they also gave up their right to self-defense, more or less. And as they gave up this right uh, of of their the decentralized storage of their oral tradition and uh, their their you know self determined defense of their community, they created uh, a class system, and this class system slowly centralized the priestly class and the military class began to combine, and in doing so, began to surround themselves in the vestiges of power. And that is what created early lordships and led into the age of, of monarchies. So, yeah. Very interesting. Uh, Kropotkin. Yeah. Uh, the State, Its Historic Role is wonderful. It's a great book. Um, but, yeah, so that I agree. Um, if you're really looking at what is the, ri- what is the rise of feudalism, if we're kind of looking at this as a big parallel to history and, you know, or early uh, primitive human history, uh, the rise of feudalism would be exactly that. It would be Ruri, Tsukasa, and Senku joining together. <laughs> I think Gen and... would be involved as well. Oh, yeah. He's oh, really good yeah. at tricking people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, and so, you know, those, those would be your, your, your early exploiter class. Um, and largely because the people trusted power to them, uh, that they would only many only centuries later recognize the mistakes that their ancestors had made. So another this is a little nitpicky, I guess. Um, but another thing that kind of made me mad, just because, I mean, a lot of people think this, but we talked about this in an earlier episode. It's a two part episode called "Why Did We Stop Putting Out?" And um, so they they mentioned 
they need to use factories to produce large amounts of stuff, which uh, factories are not just a place that are purpose built for making stuff because they were contrasting with their laboratory, which, you know, is for experimentation, but uh, they could just as easily have a workshop system. So prior to the rise of factories, uh, most stuff was produced in workshops. And if you were to try and produce something on a large scale, you would just have a bunch of different workshops make the same thing. And so the actual main reason that factories were the reason they came into favor, I guess, is not that they're better at producing large amounts of stuff, but actually that they centralize production so that it can be more easily managed and workers can be forced to work longer hours with fewer breaks and you can have a floor boss that uh, makes sure that they're not embezzling materials because prior to factories, if workers felt they weren't being paid enough, they would just start stealing shit to make up for the amount of <laughs> money they think they should have been making. Yeah. And furthermore, the, the factory system was a mechanism to uh, uh, enforce a division of labor. Right. Like it created yeah. it created a, a much stricter division of labor because, you know, if you were to tell a series of workshops to do a particular division of labor, um, you know, that would be very difficult to enforce. But when you build a factory that the way literally that the building is structured is such that you must divide labor to use the building. Well, mm -hmm. then you have a very effective means of dividing labor and in dividing labor, you create easily exploited workers. You know, divided labor is much easier to exploit. So, yeah, that's also part of the factory system. To create the, the to recreate the factory system is to create many of the early conditions for capitalism. Uh, or yeah, I was arguing. I was arguing on Twitter recently with a a bright green um, eco socialist who I was trying to argue that we can't just like take the factories that exist now and repurpose them for good. Because factories are inherently created for controlling people and exploiting them. And just like, you can't just like send a bunch of people into a factory and be like, okay, yeah, manage yourselves now. Like, just do the factory, but good. <laughs> it, like, it's a specific technology that's built in a certain way. So that, like you said, you can divide workers, make them easily exploited. They have to be specialized. They're doing, you know, hard toil because everything is divided into what is it taylorism they're divided into yeah. repeatable tasks yes yeah that is precisely what Taylor and I, the factory and taylorism like evolved side by side to yeah. you know like the factory came first and then taylorism was almost like the ideology of like how, okay now that we've started creating these things how is it that we should understand what this whole process looks like how can we make it more quote unquote efficient in other words you know exploitative and able to be controlled uh but yeah no it's totally true um a factory is is a is a purpose-built tool uh, you cannot just simply take the factory itself and then turn it into a liberatory machine. Uh, in fact, we would have to, when we build a new society, it will have to be a society where a large amount of the infrastructure is is either uh, abandoned, which I would say maybe not the best idea, or at least heavily restructured, heavily you know uh, renovated as we go through the process. Because, and I've I've mentioned this to people before. 
capitalism is built on a series of supply chains and infrastructural uh, structures. This is kind of why a lot of communist revolutions had problems uh, when they tried to take over urban centers was because they would try to take over the urban center and they would go, cool, now do it socialist. And they would realize, oh, this infrastructure is not built for socialism. This infrastructure mm -hmm. is built for centralized entities to command supply chains. And therefore, they ended up creating state capitalism in a lot of those situations. So, yeah, uh, I think that's one of the un, one of the vast blind spots of Sanku, <laughs> right? Yes. Like he does not understand that technology, technology, uh, uh, the what technology you choose, how technology is structured also does structure your so your society and once again as bookchin says your society structures the sort of technology that you create and put in place so sort of in a in a feedback sanku's just kind of like well technology is neutral <laughs> yes like, yeah. yeah yeah i think he's a great example of how reactionary it is to just be you know like politically neutral technician mm -hmm. if all you care about is technics um, but you don't realize that it has a political place, you will just reproduce exactly the ideology of the society that raised you. Um, and I think like currently in the manga, they are, this is not going to spoil much, but, um, they are trying to bring back like a global industry. And so they're, they're planning to build cities that are specialized in certain things. And they just, they just so happen to reflect exactly the kind of things they specialize in now. So it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have uh, corn production in America, rubber production in Indonesia, um, no. bauxite production in Australia, and something in South America. We need to go South get America. cobalt from Africa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got to get there the children. Go. <laughs> go get the lithium from <laughs> yes. America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think as, as their society starts to scale up, like currently we don't see that many problems because it's like oh we have like one gun that's fine oh we have one car that's not a big deal but like once you start needing a lot of them enough for seven billion people then you're going to start seeing it absolutely destroying the ecosystem that has been restored pretty pretty quickly from the absence of humans the last yeah. stone person can get revived just to die from climate collapse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's this in, okay. So, you know, that's, those are the biggest flaws of, of Senku, right? My, my issue with Sukasa is that he think he also doesn't seem to understand that if, okay, you are never going to prevent the, the re-arisal of these technological modes what you have to do is create the the sort of uh soil that is fertile for these technological modes to be applied in a more uh you know socially cohesive way in a way that is more liberatory so what you have is Sukasa essentially is it would be is in denial of the inevitability of technology developing and Senku is in denial of the the moral nature of how technology is applied. Um, so uh, if Sukasa really wanted to make it to where technology wasn't going to turn into this uh, sort of disgusting thing that Senku wants it to be, Sukasa would need to create uh, 
an anarchist accountability structure that would govern the usage and application of technology in society. That's the only way, in fact, that you're ever going to prevent the arising of all of those hierarchies that Sukasa hates. Because the truth is, is that it doesn't matter. There's a sort of eugenic uh, uh, nonsense in what Sukasa is doing uh, with his with his project of just killing all the old people. There's some concept in his mind that oh, all we got to do is kill the old uh, hierarchical, you know, the old lords, the old rulers, and then no rulers. And it's like no. Rulers arise because of systems. Rulers don't arise because rulers are uniquely evil people. So what you have to do is create a system which uh, solidifies the liberatory paradigm. And uh, Sukasa just kind of doesn't seem to understand that. He doesn't seem to have any conception of, of what would be built to prevent the re-arising of rulers. He's just like, cool, we just kill all the previous rulers, don't have them in our society, problem solved. It's like, uh, not quite, you know, way more complicated than that. Greedy ruler is a genetic trait. And if we just, you know, kill that <laughs> off. <laughs> right. This is why I called him eco-fascist at the beginning. Uh, I mean, it seems like there's some desire to return to a previous idyllic state. Um, I think he's just a communist without theory. I could see that he's a primitive so, communist. Perhaps he should read. He should read um, "Society and Technics" by Mumford. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and Sanku should read "Against the Grain." <laughs> he's Dang. like a liberals. He's like a liberals thought up hallucination of what a uh, primitivist primitivist communist would look like. Like, or even like a like that, but like almost anyone's idea of what a primitivist is, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I mean, as you said, um, uh, he 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 naturally had to be a straw version of of uh, of any ideology that he could represent. Otherwise, we would root for him. Yes. <laughs> and in fact, they <laughs> failed to some degree because even though I've said that I side, I would side with Sanku overall because I, you know, overall think that technology is inevitable. Uh, I do. I am constantly sympathizing with Sukasa. <laughs> <laughs> especially when he goes on his anti-hierarchical rants i'm like oh you're you i think might be the good guy uh yep. <laughs> i can't quite tell <laughs> this tale of like him picking up the shells on the sea like for his sister oh, yeah. like oh god he's definitely a character who's like shaped by trauma mm-hmm. in his life and has a first-hand experience of like the, the horrors of capitalism, but he almost knee jerks too far in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like he's smart, but not well read. Yeah. yeah. Like none of them, it really shows how bad the political science system is in the education system in Japan at that time. Cause uh-huh. they're all just so ignorant to just any kind of like ideology. There we go. We figured it out. That's the true critique of the show is that <laughs> Japan's political science education is in- completely insufficient. We have solved Dr. Stone. There it is. <laughs> and before you before you say that this is a this is racist, you know, come on, we're learning this from actual experience from watching an anime. So, yes, I don't think it can precisely. Be. <laughs> yeah, no. What? I, I don't see any problems here. Um <laughs> You're going to tell all these weeaboos that it's racist to derive all your culture from anime? Oh, <laughs> they would not they would not be able to hear such a thing. Um, 
but yeah i mean it's true you know they, they both have sort of uh uh uh, enormous political blind spots that are loopholes the size of planets, you know, like that, that both of them are going to have extreme difficulties as they proceed. Tsukasa is going to produce feudalism and uh, uh, Senku is going to attempt to completely skip feudalism, monarchy, mercantilism, and go straight back to capitalism. So... It's I don't pretty, even know if it, he'll produce feudalism. I, it, it will probably be some kind of hierarchical society. Especially like once he dies, that's like a another big blind spot that people tend to have is like, oh yeah, we just need to put like a good guy in charge of everyone and then everything will be good because the guy will be good. But then as soon as he like loses grip on power or dies, he can be replaced by a piece of shit who's going to do mm-hmm. terrible things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you've mentioned, Hyoga has a pretty horrifying ideology. And if indeed uh, Sukasa were to die, it seems pretty clear that Hyoga would be the one to take the helm. Uh-huh. And then you've created a society which is structured around, if not worship, uh, uh, acceptance, uh, implicit acceptance of a strong man leading them. And, you know, he's got even more socially Darwinist of an ideology. So essentially for this structure, social structure to work, Sukasa just has to continue living forever. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. And, and also, I, I don't think it would quite be feudalism because a big part of that was the, uh, the manor system and the open field system. Well, the open field system was more, I think, European. But, but basically, like, you know, they had an agrarian society and the agricultural workers were the underclass but uh this was a hunting based society um so it wouldn't quite i don't think it would quite resemble feudalism but uh oh as it was it's not yeah yeah um so okay one more meta theory of writing this is something i i saw an interview with the author and the artist inagaki and boichi and inagaki said something that was pretty interesting I'm just going to read his, his whole response. I didn't write down the question or link the interview. That's pretty stupid of me. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so they were asking him like where he, like how he came up with these characters. And that was, that was one of the things I was trying to figure out was uh, how he came up with these characters and if, he, if they were based on anyone he knew. But uh, so he says, uh, it wasn't as if Senku just appeared out of thin air. Uh, oh, sorry. This is not a response. Okay. It wasn't as if Senku just appeared out of thin air. Rather, Inagaki professes to use a method of character creation that he refers to as acting. Essentially, Inagaki recognizes that a storyteller or writer can only create a limited number of truly interesting and compelling characters in their lifetime. Therefore, he often reuses set types of characters in new settings for his works. And in the case of Senku, he essentially reused the character of Agon from his previous serialization, Eye Shield 21, which is a, a manga about football, American football. Um... <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting that the idea that you can only create a limited number of interesting or compelling characters in their lifetime. Yeah. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I I don't know if I agree as a writer, but, um, I haven't written as long as, as he has. So, uh, I I could perhaps, uh, say that I should trust to his wisdom because he's been doing (laughs) it longer than I have, but 
I, as a writer, don't agree. I, I think I think part of the job uh, of being a writer is attempting to constantly inhabit the minds of new of new characters, of trying to see them from unique circumstances, understand how their environment formed them, understand you know who they are as a person, essentially what their nature and nurture is. And I, I would say, from that perspective, you should always be in a process of creating new characters. Every character should be unique, but that's. Uh, that's my bias, I suppose. As long as you don't stop meeting like new people, like I think this this writer probably just doesn't meet a lot of new people, so it doesn't get to or doesn't interact like uh, well with different types of people. You know, probably has a, a closed social social circle or something. Because when you meet like meet or interact with or see other characters, either in real life or in media, like that'll spawn inspiration for other things that you could go with it. So in other words, yeah. his ability to write new and interesting characters is limited by the alienation that his main character is attempting to bring back. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. You really tied it all together. You tied it all together. Um, yeah. Another thing that I had written in my notes, which I think is interesting. Uh, it comes from that same conversation between Senku and Magma. Uh, and, and it was just like the subtext of their conversation. And I said that underlying all of Senku's tactics for persuasion is an unspoken principle that people submit to authority because they are offered goods and services which compensate them for submission. They make that pretty and, explicit later on when, when they revive Ryusui. <laughs> is that right? I mean, yeah. it sounds like it. But it sounds it, like that. that I, I definitely didn't the, pick up on that subtext uh, that you did there. Yeah, because think about it. When he's trying to, when when he's convincing Magma, Magma has this extremely staunch social Darwinish mindset. And what convinces him? Literally, just Sanku saying, "I will sh show you lots of cool things." Like that's literally all it comes <laughs> down to. What other what other subtext could it have? You know that he it's Magma is submitting because he has offered goods and services which com compensate him for submission. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's something that I noticed. It's uh, it's interesting that that becomes more more explicit in the manga as it proceeds. But I think that motivates the author too, because that's I mean that's essentially what Senku is motivated by, because uh, mm -hmm. he he mentions for sure in the anime that you know he doesn't care about blah blah blah. I don't remember what he said he didn't care about, but he's like I'm only interested in you know Doraemon and Mecha and and video games mm -hmm. and shit like that. So he basically wants to bring back statism. <laughs> and modern yeah. society just so he can like watch anime and play video games yep as no. he says it doesn't matter who's the boss or who's on top there are all kinds of people and that equals strength <laughs> I, I i put beside that in capital bold letters no senku bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that is contained, that subtext is contained everywhere. And you can see that the writer is constantly reinforcing it by, by making the characters uh, uh, act by that ethos, right? Mm -hmm. Every single, like, take the, uh, the, the, the crafter, the, 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 what do they call him? The uh, maker, the, the old man yeah, in I the village. I keep forgetting his name. Something easy, his, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
his is more his is more reasonable. I feel like it's easier to understand where a character like his would be coming from. But he's like the character that it demonstrates most clearly. Uh, you know, he's like literally thinks that they are villains and they've been like destroying his bridge and all of that. And literally all they have to do is be like, oh, but look at all this cool stuff. And he's like, you're right. Screw it. I don't I don't have any of those morals anymore. I, I want to make <laughs> cool stuff. You know, Kasuki, like, that's his name. I like his character. He's an, yeah, he's great. Character. Um, but, but, you know, the writer is, is reinforcing this concept. Uh, as soon as people are given things, they just become placated. So I guess it's to say that the, the writer unironically likes, uh, bread and circuses, right? Like yeah. that's kind of what's going on. At least in Kosaki's case, he's interested in making things and not just being true. given them. That is very true. That is a, that is a big difference. I think that's why Tsukasa is so interesting because he's the only one who's like extremely not motivated by those things. Yes. He's the only one who's motivated by ideology. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the, the first time in the, in the show, at least at once again, I don't know how far it goes in the manga, but in the show, at least they even make sure to have characters really seeming to enjoy this way of life, right? Mm-hmm. Like under Tsukasa, they they seem they're all smiling. They even say literally, "I prefer this to the way things were," right? So like it's it's very explicit in telling you Tsukasa is creating a better uh, a society that they prefer. Of course, um, yeah. Minami says see- like, yeah, it's true. <sighs> I worked myself ragged, day in and day out, only to give up most of my money to someone else's rent. Looking back on it, that's just slavery. The privileged elders were ruthlessly exploiting the impoverished young. The old world worked by theft and rampant corruption. I'm a lot happier now in this new world. (laughs) And it's like, dang, you got it, nailed it. True. (laughs) Good job on that one. Uh... But yeah, and then and then by contrast, you look at Senku's society, and everybody is constantly laboring. Everybody's constantly tired. Yeah. They're being kept up through the night. They're literally not sleeping for days sometimes, you know? Uh, it, it's interesting um, because the it's weird how the author seems to be both conscious of the exploitation he's advocating and then other times completely unconscious about how he's advocating it. I almost wonder if that's like the ideal, like the Japanese idealization of, of being a salary man, you know, like, yes, you work a lot of hours, but at the end of the day, you like make cool stuff or get cool stuff as a result of your efforts. I actually think that it is. Uh, when I was, when I was watching the scenes where they weren't sleeping for days and then the way that the show was sort of idealizing it and presenting it as heroic, I was like, Dang, this reminds me so much of the stories that people tell me about in Japan, how it is actually seen as like a venerable to be caught sleeping at your desk because it demonstrates that you've been staying up for so long to benefit the company with your labor. And it's like, hmm. this is exactly that. This is kind of like them saying, like, look how good it is to sacrifice sleep and mental health <laughs> in order to labor and create things uh for this structure you know like it 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 seems very much uh uh tied in with that with that cultural idea one other thing from this interview that i thought was interesting this is more of a behind the scenes type thing they are talking about the modern manga production process and they said uh one final thing that inagaki touched on during the interview 
was how his cooperation with artist Boichi works. Surprisingly, Inagaki and Boichi have apparently only met in person a couple of times and work in different places. Instead of meeting up, Inagaki simply draws storyboards and faxes them to his editor. This part is weird. Faxes them to his editor, who then forwards them to Boichi, so they don't actually go, like what? message each other directly. Um, and Inagaki remarks that direction is becoming increasingly important in, mod- in the modern world of manga, which is why he continues to draw storyboards despite Boichi's artistic prowess. He claims that writing out a scenario for each chapter can easily lead to different priorities for the writer and artist, resulting in a lesser work. Perhaps this is why we're seeing an increase in artist-writer duos in the modern weekly Shonen Jump, most notable of which the duo of Naruto creator Masashi Kishimoto and artist Akira Okubo uh, for the newly launched Samurai 8, The Tale of Hachi Maruden. Interesting. Interesting. That was not actually a correctly written sentence, but uh, no, I yeah, I just read I it get the way it, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I would I, I consider I've always considered it uh, an interesting cultural oddity that in Japan the writers and the artists are the same most of the time. Like that is not normal for the rest of the comic world, right? Like Western mm-hmm. comics are not done that way. In fact, Western comics have quite a few people working on all of them literally they have much more of a division of labor you might say whereas yeah. in japan it's 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 uh interesting and i actually like it that the artist and the writer are usually the same person but it's interesting that uh the writer of dr stone uh is saying that he he like advocates more division of labor <laughs> and i don't know and how kind that of more alienation too because he's not even ta- talking directly to the artist <laughs> It's like That's using the editor as an intermediary. That is very strange. That is very strange. Yeah. Um, because, in fact, it, it's, it, would, it would not appear to be normal uh, uh, as per the Japanese manga culture, given that, like we just said, usually the artist and the writer are the same person. So it's even more peculiar than in this situation. Not only are they not the same person, but they don't even communicate with one another. Very, very odd, but interesting. It does, I think, adopt well to COVID times, though, you know. The, yes the the most recent dr stone came out last week so there's probably another one coming out today actually oh the manga yeah yeah right, should, should i start reading it uh i would if you're if you're if you like the anime enough um definitely worth reading it's really short chapters too so it's kind of mm-hmm. easy to just kind of burn through a bunch of them yeah i read gotcha. 100 chapters in like three days so <laughs> i'm really i've never been able to read like manga before i've tried twice with uh berserk and then there was another one but i forgot it but yeah i wasn't able to get too far just because it's too uh complicated or whatever visually complicated so i end up not paying attention to things and then yeah like when i read one piece i have a hard time following the action like if they're if they're having a fight i can't really follow the action very well which yeah, is really the important. only reason that I like watching the anime because the anime is really bad, but, um, but this one doesn't have as much fighting stuff. So it's a lot easier to follow, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the only, and the, the, like the real, uh, snazzy, like sparkly moments are all just like when they mm-hmm. make something cool and it kind of teaches you how to do stuff, which is, I thought was really cool that I now know how to uh, make sulfa drugs. Yeah, and cola. That's (laughs) one that I'll actually try. 
making cola. Yeah, the is it cilantro, lemon, and uh, cilantro and lime and honey. And honey, that's what yeah. it was. It was. So weird. I want to try that. My girlfriend Be was like, like, "Bullshit, that's not how you make cola." And I was like, "I'm gonna try this now." <laughs> you gotta make sure you're not one of those people who tastes cilantro as soap, though, because I don't think mm-hmm. it'll work. Then. Yeah, I wonder how that works. Do they taste cola different? I, well, I don't think I don't think cilantro's in like most cola. You know, like Coca Cola. Yeah, I think that's they use true. coca leaves. They have like the sole license. Maybe that just approximates it. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's how the early cola was made. I think that's quite possibly what's happening there. Uh, yeah, I, I found it. I found it interesting um, how much attention they actually paid to to the chemistry and to the geology uh, and, and their actual access to to minerals. Like one of the things that struck me is because my background's physics, not chemistry, but mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I I was watching it and. Uh, it was the part where they were talking about wanting to make black powder and the the revival fluid and they needed they needed a uh, nitrite from the guano and i was like i i know that that naturally occurs like you can go you can you can find it and i went and did research and it's like yes it actually does but in desert areas huh. and i was like oh japan actually doesn't have i don't know even know if it has any desert so yeah I, I saw a comment from someone. They they pointed out that if they wanted to make uh, guns, they would actually have an easier time if they used nitrocellulose, um, hmm. because all you need is plant material and nitric acid. I think. I thought that That's was interesting. interesting. Uh, I actually forgot a section of my notes. I think this will be fun. So, if you were in Sanku's place, essentially, what modern technologies do you think you would bring back to the Stone Age first? Ooh. Oh. So I'll I'll start since I already thought of it. Mm-hmm. Um, my my list. The first thing is bricks, because it's easy to get clay. Um, they already mentioned using calcium carbonate for mortar. Uh, they have a stove they could use as a kiln, and their village was burned down. So yeah, like you could immediately just be like, hey, I can make buildings that won't burn down. Isn't that cool? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think what do you you just need wood ash clay. And that's, that's about it, right? Yeah. You can yeah. even bake it, I think. Yeah, and, and then and then it's super it's super easy to create a mud stove. Like you know, you can just bake it with fire, and yeah, yeah, that stuff's all really doable. Um, I don't know. Uh, I can't think of the exact things. You know, some some of the things uh, I would think to want to bring back are just the more complicated things. But the show has obviously demonstrated that it has no, it doesn't care at all how complicated the thing is. It, it yeah. almost wants, <laughs> it almost likes the complicated things. It almost prefers them. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think another one I said was uh, canning. So they have, mm-hmm. they already got steel, and they like the indigenous people couldn't didn't know how to preserve food, which I find I, again find unlikely, but. Um, they, so they didn't have pickling or curing. Uh, those are two things that I'm good at and I would easily be able to bring back uh, with my current abilities. Um, canning, I would probably have a little harder time with, but uh, definitely a good practical way to preserve food that doesn't require electricity other than whatever you need to use to make the steel. Another one I put was wood gas. So instead of using coal, which produce pollutes like crazy... Uh, you can make wood gas, which you make from ordinary wood. You put it in a gasifier, um, and the leftover uh, residue is biochar, which you can also use to upgrade soil. 
Interesting. I, I guess I was just I was just thinking about it for a moment, and uh, uh, it's unfortunate they skipped Steam completely. Apparently, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Steam is Steam is not as efficient as Petroleum, but it is in many ways quite a bit more achievable. And they, I, I you know, seems to me like Steam probably would have been a much better intermediary for them to attempt. Uh, they wouldn't have needed. It's also great for cooking. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, Steam technology was was amazingly di- uh, diverse. Like, if we had not had as a planet access to excessive amounts of petroleum because of our long uh, geological history, you know, Steam probably would have continued being a, a dominant manner for us to to power all of our things. So yeah, that's uh, it's interesting that that in the the manga they're just completely skipping the steam age. Yeah, I also put wind power. Um, so I mean, Ishigami Village is on a bluff over the ocean, so it's bound to have plenty of wind. And windmills, like we think of them as wind turbines today, but they don't have to be like enormous fiberglass composite blades turning an involute bevel gearbox to spin dysprosium doped neodymium magnets around a stator on a stainless steel support tower to generate 15 megawatts of electricity like they are today uh they could just be like simple wooden blades that turn like a cast iron gearbox uh sitting on top of some boards like early windmills were just just completely wood um and they were used to make mechanical force mostly so you can use them to saw boards or or mill stuff and uh that's a good actual like labor saving invention. Yeah. They also, uh, another thing is they completely skipped like bronze and went straight Mm -hmm. to iron, even though bronze is more available in pretty much every place on earth. From my understanding, like most places you can literally go to like riverbeds and crack stones open and find flecks of, of bronze in them. So it's kind of unusual that they didn't just like go straight to making bronze weapons after they created flint weapons. Uh, I guess that that also something that annoyed the heck out of me was that their flint weapons were not treated as lethal <laughs> in in every single scene, which is a bit of a tangent. But that that annoyed me. They were almost treated like they were blunt weapons. It was very weird. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally somebody got stabbed with a flint spear at one point and it was treated like it was a mace that they got hit with or something. It's like, <laughs> they, what? With it, and they're just like, oh, I'm going to fly back. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even get into all that, but yeah. Anyway. Um, what would you bring back, Cheech? I would say two things. Uh, first thing, probably more doable, it would be a wood, wood stove generator. I've, I've only uh-huh. seen it a few times, so I don't really understand the technology behind it, but, you know, they've kind of pulled some stuff that would you'd think would be technologically impossible out at that a time. would be technologically possible no impossible <laughs> yeah yeah they're like oh we're gonna make uh this no i was just making a pun on wood oh mm. that, damn it Flew right over <laughs> you're you're th- you're thinking too smart i'm being very dumb right now <laughs> <laughs> but uh the second thing would be uh, and it's probably kind of dumb, but like a computer with some kind of land network because their information storage is just kind of like, hey, what are they going to do if Senku dies? Like, true, just gets true, killed. True. They're just fucked. So it'd be in their favor to kind of record all of this stuff somehow. And being able to record and draw diagrams electronically 
would save a ton of time, you know, saving things on paper is almost impossible. They'd have to like chisel shit in a stone, which is really kind of hard to do with technical diagrams. So like, I don't know. I think a computer would be a good like story. Ink is readily available though. It's uh, you can actually make ink pretty easily yourself. It's lamp black, which is the soot that's like in the chimney or, you know, like if you hold, like a piece of metal over a candle really close. Yeah. There will be like soot on the bottom. You take that and you mix it with water and that's India ink. Um, but the, and they made paper at some point. So they, yeah. they could definitely write with modern ink technology, but it doesn't, it doesn't store well, you know, paper is extremely easy. Debatable. I don't want to get into that debate, okay. but uh, <laughs> I disagree with you there. <laughs> and then they could hook it up to some kind of land network and set up the internet. So then they could like, you know, play Warcraft. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> video games and then let other people do the state craft. So he doesn't accidentally uh, reinvent global capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I invented tanks and global market capitalism. <laughs> in a foxy wuxy. So I guess I tile guess... stoves would be good. Speaking of wood stoves, um, if you cover a wood stove with tiles, um, it increases the thermal mass, and you basically just only have to burn like a little bit of wood and like early in the day, and then it radiates heat like throughout the entire day. Oh, nice! And you can just like grill stuff on it, probably. With... Yeah, you can like lay on it. Ooh, nice. So it's like a heated yeah. bed. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Oh, and uh, buckwheat pillows. That's one that I would... Oh, God. Like, I personally, I have a buckwheat pillow. It kicks ass. Buckwheat is really easy to grow. Like, I planted some in my garden like four years ago, and it comes back every year. And um, you can eat the seed part and use the hulls for pillows that are... They're like memory foam, except I think more comfortable. I need to check that out. I need a new pillow. I want to change my yeah, answer, cheap too. and uh, I I want the modern technology that they get to be dabs. They <laughs> they start growing. I was wondering if you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> they just get totally ripped all the time. <laughs> I think that is what could bring the two villages together: exactly. Sukasa's village and Senku's village. They just need to create, you know, marijuana distillates, and then <laughs> Sukasa's village will be happy because they'll just be blazed. Senku's village will be happy because they'll be creating the distillates. You know, it's <laughs> the ideal outcome. Yeah, it'll kill the social Darwinists. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I think overall very worth watching dr stone or reading it uh, whichever you prefer it's definitely one of my favorite series there's a lot to talk about like i mentioned before the show i actually have 27 pages of notes on it so we didn't even cover everything but uh yeah i can assume that you guys really enjoyed it too yeah i actually really liked it um i think part of the reason i liked it is because it it like we both said at the very beginning, it was very unique. It had a very, it was not, mm -hmm. it was, did not play, even though it had some anime tropes, it did not have the pacing and the story arcs of reg of, of most uh, popular anime. It, it took a very different approach to storytelling. And uh, I'm still interested to see where it all goes. 
It is still very fan servicey, though. I will mm-hmm. say that for yeah. anyone who cares about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, the chapter where they invent makeup and then immediately <laughs> feminize Jinro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they bimbofy him. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed Minecraft the anime. You know, I've been looking for yes. indeed <laughs> playing since Alpha. You know, thought they'd make Steve look a little different. Don't know why they changed. It's definitely in my top ten now for like animes, just because nice worlds and that like the the kind of universe that these things exist in and how the people interact with it is the main thing that i like look in when i'm looking for anime i don't know why i've always just liked that best you could set up the greatest fucking universe and if it's a garbage anime i'll still love it like uh (laughs) diaries loved future diaries can't find too many people who share that opinion Mm. but um yeah, it was really good. Highly, highly recommend reading the manga too. If you're like like me, not able to really get into reading manga, give this one a check out. Do you all have anything to plug before we go? Uh, yeah, go watch my YouTube channel, Anark A N A R K. Um, I make it's good folks. I make videos on anarchist and libertarian socialist theory. Um, yeah, go, go give it a watch. I am, uh, at Hermes the Magi on Twitter and SoundCloud. I just released an EP, uh, Screamy Rap about a month ago now, something like that. But hell yeah, it's all about the end of the world and it's really kind of, <laughs> uh, jarring, I don't know, experimental. So yeah, might not be your ish, but go check it out if you want. I will uh, include both of those in the show description. Daniel and Cheech, thank you for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Invite me on again, my friend. Hell yeah, (laughs) we will do. All right, bye. Bye.